Today, there is no norm for anyone. Those guaranteed straight line steps have been replaced by ambiguity and uncertainty. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. As we enter a new year, it's a great opportunity to set new intentions. Call them resolutions, call them commitments, goals, whatever you want. For whatever reason, humankind has used the transition from one year to the next as a as a moment to rethink or consider how we want to change what we want to change and perhaps more dramatically how we want to evolve and i thought because of that it might be fun fun maybe the wrong word to read to you the first chapter of a book i wrote a couple years ago titled this is it this is it is part self-help, part memoir, part commentary about the why and how to change. The ultimate rationale being, this is it. This is the only life we get, and shouldn't we take the greatest advantage possible of that fact? So here we go with chapter one. Hopefully you enjoy it. If you do, I'm going to keep reading the other chapters over the course of the next year. You can also jump to Amazon and buy the book not available in audio. So this is sort of an exclusive, exclusive offer here. So here we go. Chapter one, actually lesson one, evolve or else. This is it. This is your life. This is my life. And unless you believe in reincarnation, it's the only one you get, we get. Which means according to the latest mortality figures, you get around 80 years plus or minus to take full advantage of it. And sadly, terribly, most people don't even try. But my guess is, because you're listening to Insert Human, you've chosen not to be like most people. You realize, in fact, that this is it. You've chosen to innovate. You've chosen to behave differently. You've chosen to learn. Thank you for that. What most other people don't realize quite yet is that you cannot achieve whatever it is you seek to achieve without continuously evolving your capabilities and sensibilities until the day you leave this earth. You cannot get to a better, more fulfilling life without creating a better, more capable, more grounded version of you, period. The rub is there's no entitlement at play here. The American dream, such as it is or was, accrues to those who evolve, not to those who hold on to yesterday or those who rest on the laurels of their trust fund. A large chunk of the developed world is not getting this point right now and not getting the first lesson of this book, Evolve or Else. If you do not commit to personal growth and evolution, your ability to realize the full potential of your life, I believe, is nil. Mortality bites and fear is ravenous. The first order of this business is to accept that mortality is going to bite us all in the ass. Whoever said it was right, There's no escaping death or taxes. But we, as humans, are masters of delusion, operating as if there will always be another day, 
another opportunity to do the things we know we should do, the things we want to do. But our delusion results in delay and delay turns into standing still. And standing still quickly converts into the feeling of being stuck or worse, lost. We never evolve because we pretend we will live forever. And because there's something in us, a tiny nasal twang little voice constantly whispering, don't go there, don't go there. In his really wonderful, captivating little book, The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield calls that annoying little voice resistance. In fact, he spends half the book explaining resistance and its incessant, multifaceted capacity to thwart our personal evolution. His best explanation is captured here. Resistance to evolution feeds on fear. We experience resistance as fear. But fear of what? Fear of the consequences of following our heart? Fear of bankruptcy, fear of poverty, fear of insolvency, fear of groveling when we try to make it our own, of groveling when we give up and come crawling back to where we started, fear of being selfish, of being rotten wives or disloyal husbands, fear of failing to support our families, of sacrificing their dream for ours, fear of betraying our race, our hood, our homies, fear of throwing away the education, the training, the preparation that those we love have sacrificed so much for, that we ourselves worked our butts off for, fear of launching into the void, of hurtling too far out there, fear of passing some point of no return beyond which we cannot reverse, cannot rescind, but must live within this cocked up choice for the rest of our lives, fear of madness, fear of insanity, fear of death. He goes on to say, in an even more appropriately dramatic form, but they are not the real fear, not the master fear, the mother of all fears that's so close to us that even when we verbalize it, we don't believe it. Fear that we will succeed. Exactly right, Steve. Fear of success is the insidious monster, the fountainhead of all of our reluctance to change, to evolve, to innovate, to move forward, because success necessitates change. And even if we want that change, that little voice inside us is afraid of the other changes that will always come along with it. Change is the unknown, and the unknown is out of our control, and being out of control means not being secure, and we really, really, really don't like not being secure. Deepak Chopra, who I'm sure you know, or not know, but you know of, in his book, The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, really nails it. The search for security is an illusion, actually just an attachment to the known. And what is the known? The known is our past. The known is nothing other than the prisoner of past conditioning. There's no evolution in that. Absolutely none at all. And when there is no evolution, there is stagnation, entropy, disorder, and decay. And for me, when there is no evolution, there is decay, deterioration, discoloration, yuck. So not evolving means decaying and other unpleasant things. And you cannot evolve if you are addicted to the past, to the known. You can only realize your full potential and the possibilities of your future by taking the needle of the past out of your brain and learning to be fully and freely present in your heart. I know it sounds easy, but it's not. So my goal in the pages that follow is to convince and motivate you to embrace the fact that your evolution also known as personal change, is not just an option, but it's essential. And to show you some really straightforward ways to make it happen, practical steps 
including telling that little voice in your head to shut the hell up. So I'm going to dig a little deeper on why this really matters. Darwin was right. Only the fittest succeed. So that adage, people don't change, my view is antiquated crap. It should be replaced with people must change. The world is spinning really fast. And if you don't spin in sync or faster, the centrifugal force will send you flying into outer space to float around aimlessly and eventually run out of oxygen. I know, nice visual. In days of yore, not even 20 years ago, the world spun a lot more slowly. A successful life was defined by conformance and achievement of the norm. Two cars in every garage, a chicken in every pot. And the inference was that just showing up got you there. The life and career path for an average American back then was a pretty simple and pretty straight line. You go to college, you graduate and get a job that pays you more than you need to pay off your college loans. You get married and hopefully don't get divorced. You get promoted, nice work. You have kids, you get promoted again, you become a manager and you kick back because you paid your dues and you retire at 55 with a full pension sitting on the front porch in the rocking chair watching the sun go down. Today, not so much. Today, there is no norm for anyone. Those guaranteed straight line steps have been replaced by ambiguity and uncertainty. College is no guarantee of a good job. Working hard is no guarantee of a promotion and marriage is no guarantee of staying married. I know the pension retirement thing is now on you. So how's your 401k looking? As the standard steps to success have disappeared, personal and professional evolution has become a requisite for surviving, not just thriving. And it's a competitive proposition. The resources and support that may come to you could end up going to somebody else, unless you do something about it. Which is why the first questions anyone in today's hyper-competitive and comparative world should ask themselves are, am I in danger? Is the species of me vulnerable to the superiority of other members of my species, or robots for that matter? Am I doing my part in adding value to the value change? And most fundamentally, how can I evolve? If this fear pitch isn't motivating you, how about desire? How about looking at this whole thing as an amazing, mystical, magical, impossible to get your head around moment in your existence and your opportunity to participate in its collective evolution through your own individual evolution. I know, heady stuff, but if it works, it works. And then there's a third motivating option, which is to be motivated to evolve by a combo platter of your paralysis or stuckness with a nod to the opportunity as perfectly captured in the statement attributed to Abe Lincoln, but more likely the words of a self-help author by the name of Edward Stieglitz, who once wrote, it's not the years in your life that matter, it's the life in your years. Amen. In my advisory work at the Harvard Innovation Labs and prior to that, I've had hundreds of one-on-one -on -one sessions with people both young and old, starting out mid-career and nearing the end of their careers. And many of them are in this place, feeling like their life path and current reality are just not right or where they want them to be. Some certainly getting that the new definition of success involves less about the stuff and more about the realization of self and their unique capacities. Understanding that we have all been given a blank piece of paper, albeit with some pre-existing genomes and preconceived notions scattered about along with some crayons and blunt scissors to create the most compelling, satisfying and satisfied form of us, of self. 
and hopefully understanding that doing so is not a formulaic set of steps, but rather a messy iterative learning journey of trial and error and ultimately personal growth. I like this last one the best because it is motivation derived from a mix of desperation and aspiration with a solid dash of pragmatism. You need to do this. You want to do this. You can do this, all of which increases the chances that you will do this. Regardless of your motivational source code, evolution is essential. Consider this other view, your life, the movie. So let's just say that this life you're living, it's past, present, and future, your choices, your decisions, your actions, your inactions are all being captured by a high definition cinematography in Dolby surround sound with Steven Spielberg attempting to direct. And that at the end of your days, you get to go into a movie theater with a pearly marquee that reads your life and watch the full three hours of your life story unfold on the big screen. The question is whether you stand up at the end in proud applause or walk out of the theater shaking your head. Did the lead actor or actress, which would be you, move you? Did you marvel at their bravery and their capacity to do the right thing? Did you appreciate their thirst for learning and their willingness to embrace the unknown? Did you love how they connected with others, particularly their loved ones? Are you fundamentally amazed at the life they lived or horrified by the life they didn't live? And perhaps most importantly, would you recommend this movie to a friend or family member? How many rotten tomatoes does your life so far deserve? Which brings me to the last reason evolving you matters so much. Your life too, the sequel. Your life style and much of your storyline will be copied by others. If you have kids, they will follow in your footsteps, including standing still. If you are brave, they will be more likely to be brave. If you are curious, they will be curious. If you are open, they will probably be open too. If you continue to evolve, they will be more inclined to embrace personal evolution as a requisite part of their lives. And even if you don't have kids, you will no doubt have young people in your life who will watch you and learn from you and at times mimic you. So do you want to teach them the right or wrong lessons? As I've alluded to, the first chunk of my life story is a story of stuckness, not of evolution, but of stasis. And my three children's early childhood was impacted by that. They begin to mimic my worries, my doubts, my fears, and my fixations. I accidentally started them down a path to the same dark and limiting place I was in. One of my best, which is really means worst examples, was the day my wife and I were called in to meet with our eldest son's sixth grade teachers. We met in a classroom, the six teachers sitting in a row, staring at us. Visualize a scene out of the Spanish Inquisition. And one by one, each teacher commented on what a wonderful child AJ, our son, was a great student and a caring classmate. At the end of the love fest, I said, boy, we very much appreciate the positive feedback about AJ. We love him, too. I do have to ask, why are we here? And they all looked at each other sideways until one teacher finally blurted out, we're concerned that he worries too much. And I laughed. And I then explained that he worried because I worried. Your kids will do what you do. They will express the dark and the light, the wrong and the right. It is fundamental. Thankfully, I was able to pull myself out of the worry muck and the negative mire and hose off the mud and begin to work on evolving me 
And in doing so, I believe, helps set my children on a more meaningful, fulfilling, and positive life path. That decision and action saved me and preempted their slide into the swamp. So if yourself isn't motivated enough to evolve you, consider evolving for them. Being the director, not the stand-in. Alongside your decision to evolve must also come your decision to actively guide your evolution, to take control of the moves in your movie so that you accomplish whatever it is you want to, resulting in an end-of-life standing or perhaps lying down ovation. Too many of us operate as if we have no say in what happens, as if the choices in our life and what's happening to us are being determined by some higher power. And we are just actors on the stage being told what to do. In his book, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, the early 20th century psychiatrist and psychoanalyst Carl Jung once wrote, I am not what has happened to me. I am what I choose to become. I want to repeat that. I am not what has happened to me. I am what I choose to become. Choice. Everything is a choice. That's actually what lesson seven is about. In fact, reading the rest of this book is a choice. Doing or not doing what I suggest you do is a choice. Think of this whole thing as a playbook for the big game, but you can only win the game if you execute the plays, if you choose to execute the plays. And if you're really not in the mood to listen to the rest or read the book, it's okay. If you want a Cliff Notes version of the playbook and the choices to come, there are three. Number one, choosing to set your life intentions. Number two, choosing to let go of the bad stuff, particularly the fear. And number three, choosing to make intentional choices from a position of love of yourself and of others. Making better choices and acting on them will result in everything ending up where you want it to end up, or most everything at least. But I've neglected to mention a terrible truth about this whole thing, that even if you are mentally and emotionally prepared for this journey of evolution, there are parts of it, stages of it that will hurt. Yes, they will hurt. My generation grew up believing that you learned to some midpoint in your life and then rode the wave in the rest of the way. Turns out that you have to keep paddling until the end. Learning later on in your life can be painful. Changing later on in life can be particularly painful. And frankly, it's often exhausting. And the end is not 55. The end is the end. The pain of personal evolution is not just about the never-ending duration of the task or one's capacity to learn, but perhaps most importantly, the psychological duress associated with leaving the familiar for the unfamiliar. And it is psychological, as proven by a social psychologist named Robert Zazonk in the 1960s. He determined beyond the shadow of a doubt that people are drawn to the familiar in every aspect of life. What they like, how they decide, and the risks they are willing to take are all impacted by the comfort of the familiar versus the weight of the different. What came to be dubbed the mere exposure effect, Zazonk's theory is now considered fact in the field of psychology. An article in the Atlantic magazine references Zazonk's work and included this perfect summation. The preference for familiarity is so universal that some think it must be written into our genetic code. The familiar is, well, familiar, comfortable, non-threatening, no surprises. We hate surprises. But in order to evolve, we must all be willing to forego much of the familiar, some of our ways of thinking, and particularly our ways of being. Many of these ways are hardwired in us. 
some source from primal stuff, some from parents, and some from personal experience. The source mix doesn't really matter. What matters is your recognition, my recognition, that in order to get to the place we want to get to, we have to learn how to leave these bags on the side of the road. And saying goodbye to those bags stuffed with the familiar is really hard and sometimes painful. I can personally attest to this. The familiar of my existence for the first 40 years of my life was really all about protection, protecting myself from the truth, from the discomfort of emotional intimacy, and from exposure to the possibility of being found out as unworthy. I wore my business suit as a coat of armor, protecting me from having to connect with other people and with myself. And it worked for a good long time, or I thought it worked. And then one day, it didn't. I woke up and I realized that there was nothing inside that suit of armor. Or more specifically, I realized that there was a scared little boy in there, afraid of the world, afraid of the truth, afraid to be him. That holy crap moment prompted a call to a friend in the beginning of a really painful, but ultimately cathartic 10-year journey of introspection, conversation, and contemplation of who I really was and how I wanted to be. Over the 10 years, I worked with a slate of therapists, met with more than a dozen psychics, consulted my wisest friends, and looked in the mirror often to help figure out how to let go of my need to protect myself and embrace the world, the truth, myself, and the idea of change. The pain points were many, from a divorce and the loss of being with my three kids every day, to the realization that my long deceased dad had loved his Navy far more than my siblings or me. Pains appeared that were associated with the past, the present, and even the future. Because the future is unknown, that is scary and potentially painful. But I implicitly knew that the pain was necessary, that the hurt was its own form of release, and in order to evolve, I had to suffer a little and let go a lot. I want to stop here and just ask you a question, listener, which are scattered throughout the book. They call them IMs, which are introspective moments, not instant messages. So this first IM I want to ask you is, what are you afraid to let go of? And more importantly, why are you afraid to let go of that? It took me a long time to figure it out, so it's unfair to ask you that, ask you to answer that right now but I do think it's something worth contemplating. The truth stings. As much as letting go of the familiar can be hard, so too is the task of looking in the mirror. Acknowledging the truth about our past and our present are maybe not so great choices and decisions. But the fact of the matter is we can't move forward without doing this work. We have to inventory us, the good, the bad, the clear, the confused, because we have a chance to chart a path forward. In business terms, it's sometimes called a SWOT analysis. SWOT, S is for strengths, W is for weakness, O is for opportunity, and T is for threats. The challenges in the personal version of a SWOT exercise are how stark the reveal is, and the fact that it's not always a pleasant, something to be proud of picture. The truth really does sting, but it also fundamentally or ultimately sets us free. Failure is inevitable, and it hurts too. The task of personal innovation is remarkably similar to the task of starting a new business. All entrepreneurs stumble and fall at one point or another. The ones who succeed are the ones who are best at getting back up after the fall, dusting themselves off, and marching forward. In my former role as managing director of the Harvard Innovation Labs, I saw this on a daily basis. 
The startup journey has been rendered graphically by tons of startup experts in thousands of different ways, with lots of ups and downs being the common element. One of my favorite renditions crafted, I believe, by Paul Graham, the co-founder of Y Combinator, which is one of the most recognized startup accelerators, depicts two very common evolutionary and entrepreneurial scenarios. The first is referred to as the trough of sorrow, the painful moment in the evolution of a business when you realize that it's all a lot harder than you imagined and that material success is not guaranteed. The second to be expected scenario is something called the pivot, the painful point when you realize that your original big idea is not that big and it's maybe even bad and you need to head in a completely different direction. In your personal evolution, it's highly likely that you will fall, you will fail, you will find yourself trudging through the trough of sorrow, and you will likely need to pivot at some point, maybe multiple times. It's also highly likely that it will hurt. But as some smartass once said, no pain, no gain. Curiosity creates the cat. Assuming you're still with me, You've gotten your head around the need to evolve and you're okay with it hurting a little. The final to do in getting ready for what lies ahead is to reorient your mind to a new way of being. I call it mindfulness, but mindful with two L's, not one. And the misspelling is intentional. The more familiar form of mindfulness is definitely part of the equation. According to wherever you go, there you are by mindfulness master Jean Kabat-Zinn, Mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. So in order to evolve, you have to be present, and you can't judge anything or anybody along the way. But my slightly bastardized version of mindfulness includes a third facet, the importance of curiosity. The more curious you are, the more experience you consume, the more knowledge you gather, and the more full your mind the more that mindfulness coupled with the ability to be present and non-judgmental results in clarity. The fact of the matter is, if you don't have all the information, how in God's name can you be clear about anything? This journey of innovating your life, evolving yourself, the realization of your life's possibility is first and foremost, a journey of learning. It's not a simple flicking of a switch, but rather a messy, expansive, and arguably never-ending process of discovery about the truth of you, the wonders of the world, and everything in between. It's all fair and necessary game. The key is learning how to question everything without judging anything, beginning with yourself. It's learning how to explore the metaphysical and the meaning of the macro while dissecting the micro, like why you care about how many likes your last Facebook post got. To achieve a state of mindfulness, again, two L's, you must first embrace every waking moment of every hour of every day as a classroom and acknowledge that even your REM level dream state can teach you a thing or two. Optimal personal learning can and should be achieved through the power of consumption, reading, observation, discussion, introspection, and retrospection, but most fundamentally through questioning. Socrates knew exactly what he was doing. Here's an introspective moment question for you, why are you listening to me right now? In her book, The Power of Why, Simple Questions That Lead to Success, Amanda Lang shared, the consequences of failing to do that, questioning in our personal lives, are the same as those facing businesses, even more dire, perhaps, because what's being squandered isn't just the potential for profits, it's the potential for happiness. 
We miss opportunities to innovate and to make positive changes in our lives when we aren't willing to question ourselves. The challenge, of course, is that questioning brings your current truth and the truth of others into, well, question. And that's where bravery enters the equation. In order to evolve, you must learn. In order to learn, you must be curious. In order to be curious, you must be willing to question yourself. In order to question yourself, you must be brave. Oh, and you must also be willing to walk away from everything you believe in. Easy peasy. Burn your biases. Our capacity to really understand who we are, where we are, and how we want to evolve is muddied up by our ingrained beliefs and domineering biases. Remember the importance of the familiar? Our biases are our familiar ways of viewing the world, how we determine right versus wrong, and what we like versus what we don't. They have an alarming ability to make us see what is not there and not see what is. They thwart our ability to listen and serve as the arch enemy of objectivity. They are the raw material that gets rendered as unfair judgment. In order to achieve mindfulness, two L's, you must be non-judgmental, which means you must burn your biases. The challenge is that whether you're conscious of them or not, our biases pretty much define us and they let us off the learning hook. Our nature, my nature, your nature, is not to dig in, to study, to take responsibility for knowing the facts and the truth of much of anything. Our nature is not to be open to all learning in order to form our own truly individual and well-informed opinions, but rather to follow our natural biases and declare our unfounded belief because, well, that's pretty much the easiest path. If you don't believe me, ask anyone you know why they voted the way they voted in the most recent presidential election. I pretty much guarantee you'll get 99% feeling and 1% fact. As much as some of us believe that the truth will set us free, bias is so strong that it creates blinders to the truth and a remarkable capacity to reject data that clearly refutes what we believe. In fact, and this is an alarming fact, research shows that when people are shown data that is the opposite of what they believe, they actually believe what they believe more. That is the crazy, insidious power of bias. The question then for you and me and the world at large is how to blowtorch our biases into ashes in order to learn anew and realize our possibilities. I suggested some reflection about A, what our particular biases are, and B, where they came from, may prove enlightening and maybe a little frightening. My bet is that you'll see that your biases, like my biases, are one part primal, one part cultural, and two part situational. Like the familiar, they are the combined consequence of a very distant past, our recent past, and our perceived future. And they dominate our present because we are afraid. As much as an analysis of where they came from might prove enlightening, the real test is to shut them down by opening up our minds. You can't change the outputs without changing the inputs. Okay, so I'm going to contradict the research here. I shared that tidbit about people believing what they believe even more after being exposed to data that refutes their beliefs. Again, crazy. But I don't think that gives us license to shut down the inputs, to stop trying to consume information, opinions, and perspectives that differ from our own in order to inform our own. The fact of the matter is, if you want to open up your mind to innovate your life and to realize your most magnificent possibility, you have to open up your mental floodgates to pretty much everything. The more diverse the source material, the less aligned it is with what and how you think, the greater the chance that you will be able to see the world and yourself differently. The more you feed your mind and soul, 
the greater your ability to replace your biases with new, broader points of view, and the clearer your evolutionary options will become. We're back to motivation. Whether you're going to start hoovering up the new, torching the old, embracing the task of your evolution is not a question of understanding, but of motivation. After all, this is not really rocket science. I know you know what I'm talking about. The issue right here and now is how much do you want to change your trajectory? I've alluded to this before. There are really only two motivators of behavior change, desperation and aspiration. Aspiration associates with, I want to do this. Desperation tends to be attached to, I need to do this. And need is far more effective driver of action. The problem with desperation as motivation, however, is twofold. Because it conjures up fear, it can be paralyzing. So instead of changing our behavior and taking the steps toward a different you, you just roll up into a ball and start sucking your thumb. You're stuck. The second issue is with desperation is that most people are simply not desperate enough, which is why, in a weird way, I wish every listener and every reader of my book the deepest, darkest form of desperation, otherwise called rock bottom. As proof positive of this, several months ago, I ended up having a heartfelt late night sofa conversation with somebody I have known but not really known for years. For the first time in our decades old relationship, she shared an intimate truth about herself when she said, I feel empty inside and I don't know what to do about it. I'm paralyzed. I responded, I think, with appropriate empathy and understanding, and then followed with this I do know how you feel. That's in part why I wrote my book. This is it. I sent you a copy of it a couple months ago to help people like you and me find their way to a better place. Did you read it? And she responded, I tried to, but it hit too close to home. It hit too close to home, meaning it was too much truth, too much exposure for her to handle, which also means that she is simply not desperate enough to take on the demons of the truth. She is simply not hit rock bottom. She's not yet at the place where the calculation of life's upside is greater than the investment of discomfort required. And it is a calculation really well captured by Yoval Noah Harari in his book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. He writes, feelings are biochemical mechanisms that all mammals and birds use in order to quickly calculate probabilities of survival and reproduction. Feelings aren't based on intuition, inspiration, or freedom. They are based on calculation. When a monkey mouse or human sees a snake, fear arises because millions of neurons in the brain swiftly calculate the relevant data and conclude that the probability of death is high. Rock bottom is the snake, and it may be the only motivator that actually works. Yes, rock bottom. Not really, though. Sort of. Not really. The power of rock bottom is that it's very, very real, and there's really only one choice to make, which is to go up. There's only one direction to take up, or if you prefer, out. Rock bottom makes letting go really easy because nothing to lose. You've already lost everything. It makes risk-taking easy because you really have nothing to risk. It makes what's important really, really clear because you're no longer swimming in a murky pool of the unimportant. In a strange way, rock bottom can be the best thing that ever happens to people, enabling them to embrace the truth and motivating them to step forward boldly, bravely towards a better future and a better life. J.K. Rowling, who I'm sure you know, the author of the Harry Potter series, got it, I think, exactly right in her remarks at Harvard's 2008 commencement. She said, I was set free. 
because my greatest fear had already been realized and I was still alive. And I still had a daughter whom I adored and an old typewriter and a big idea. And so rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life. The other good news about rock bottom is that it comes in many forms. Certainly, I do not wish anybody the economic rock bottom like Miss Rowling's or deeply psychological depression grade rock bottom. But there are lesser grades, part emotional, part intellectual, and 100% effective. I hit my own rock bottom in 1997. I was unhappy enough that I'd had enough of myself and my inability to connect with the world around me. I simply couldn't take it anymore. And that's when I made the decision to evolve and I move forward. And I so want you to move forward too. I want you to listen to the rest of the book, read my book, but mostly I want you to commit to the journey of your own personal evolution. To commit to taking on the pain, the risk, the discomfort, the whatever, to innovate your life and to realize your greatest possibility. I so want you to see that this life you've been given is waiting for you. And that there's just an amazing movie to be made by you about you. I want you not to fear the unknown and the inevitable pain that you will realize as you peel back the layers and begin to forge a clear new understanding of who you actually are and where you want to go. I want you to embrace mindfulness as the way you will be as you open your mind and heart to all learning while letting go of the biases that confuse your truth. And while I don't wish you rock bottom, I do wish you this feeling. I can't take this anymore. So I'm going to evolve or else. In some of this first lesson chapter, uh, there are three exercises that I want to suggest to you that you can do. Number one, write a one paragraph Rotten Tomatoes critique of the future movie called Your Life and share it with a good friend. Number two, burn your biases. Yep, burn them. Write them down on a piece of paper and then go outside and light them up and let it flame. It will feel good. I promise. Number three, subscribe to something new, a magazine, a TV show, a Mahjong club. I don't really care. Just expose yourself to something that you wouldn't normally be exposed to and contemplate how it's changing your perspective. That's it. Chapter one, lesson one. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons. There are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.